Most of us are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. It's the story of us, when we came to our senses and came back to the Father in repentance, right? But when we take the time to read the story, study it, and consider how most Christians lead their lives, we notice something very peculiar, even troubling. In this episode, we'll look at what that peculiar thing is. Are you ready? Let's dig deeper. Welcome to the Thriving on Purpose podcast, hosted by certified coaches Elizabeth and Sebastian Richard. Elizabeth is a Christian life and leadership coach, branding consultant, and busy mompreneur. Sebastian is a Christian speaker, Bible teacher, author, and leadership expert. Together, they help today's committed believers to dig deeper in their knowledge and walk with God in order for them to grow and climb higher in life and leadership. If you want to dig even deeper, make sure to visit thrivingonpurpose.com for more free resources and content. Welcome to the Thriving on Purpose podcast. We are so excited to start a new season, giving you guys great content. We prepared some great podcasts for you this fall and winter. I hope you had a great summer. And we did have a great summer, by the way, guys. But we're really excited because the kids are going back to school this week. So for us, that's a big deal. I mean, I'm sure for all of you out there who've got who have kids, we love having them home, right? We love when school ends because we can like, I don't know, sleep in or it's a little bit more relaxed, but then it kind of drags on at, at, after, I don't know, when does it start dragging on? It's more like at the mid-August point. Yeah, when or, they start getting bored and... Exactly, which is about, I don't know, maybe a first week, second week of August, they start getting bored and they don't really know what to do themselves. So they're going back to school this week. Hallelujah. <laughs> Speaking of children, we're going to dig in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. Sebastian, would you read it to us? Yes, absolutely. We're going to start by reading the, the famed parable of Jesus, of the prodigal son, which is well known by, if you're a Christian, if you've been to church even maybe two months, you've probably heard of this parable, this wonderful story, which is a very a meaty story when you really start digging into it, which is what we're going to do today. So I'm going to read the story, which is found, by the way, in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. It's found only in Luke. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There are many lessons we can learn from this timeless parable of our Lord. If you're like us, most of the lessons you were taught in church about this passage of scripture were about the younger son who, after being famished and dirt poor, comes to his senses, repents, and decides to make his way back to his loving father. But there is so much more to this story than meets the ear. In this case, it's the ear, <laughs> because you're <laughs> listening to us. It's more than what we've been told. So let's dig deeper. So number one is the rebellion. The story begins with the younger son asking for his share of the estate. In other versions, the son calls it the portion of goods that falls to me. The younger son thus sets the stage for his quote-unquote declaration of independence. As you know, we are sinful from birth. We're born in sin. Many theologians and Bible teachers have compared sin with being or acting independently from God and His will. Something you might not know is that while believers have ten commandments 
that we abide by, Satanists adhere to one rule only, which was summed up by a man named Aleister Crowley, who is a well-known occultist and Luciferian. This one rule, or one law, is known as the Thelema, and the Thelema is stated as such, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. In other words, when we do what we want instead of what God wants, we are living like pagans, like unbelievers, even like Satanists. This is why in the Bible we read in 1 Samuel 15, 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. The unbeliever is in open rebellion against the Father because he seeks to live his way and do his own thing. In many ways, when God gave human beings free will, he gave them a, quote, share of the estate, unquote. And like the young son in the story, with this share of the estate, or free will, many have engaged in what the story calls wild living, also known as partying today. So the story begins with rebellion to the Father, which is reminiscent of how we all used to be. We all used to do our own thing, live independently of God. I don't care how old you were when you uh, repented, when you converted to, to Christ, but before that, you were doing your own thing. You were living under your life under your own terms, right? Not paying attention to what God wanted. And that brings us to number two, which we're going to talk about separation. In the story, the young son's first impulse is to put distance between himself and the father. It says that he first set off for a distant country. So the boy first went as far as he could from the father and then engaged himself in crazy living, partying, and all kinds of debauchery. If you yourself, or if you've ever witnessed a friend or relative who became what we call backslidden, the first thing they do is put some distance between themselves and holy influences in their life. When people become backslidden, backslidden, sorry, they want to live life on their terms and they want to make sure they silence any voice in their surroundings that might be hinting at their own sin. They want to silence anything reminiscent of God the Father in their life. This reminds me, I once had a friend that was going through a time of divorce. She decided that she was going to divorce um, and that she had fallen in love with another man. And um, she basically told me that if I was to talk to her about anything that had to do with reconciliation with her husband, that she would not talk to me ever again. Mm. And uh, she basically just wanted to stop all positive influence of her, uh, you know, patching things up with her husband, mm -hmm. even in, even if in the bottom of her heart, she knew that probably that was the right thing to do, but she couldn't see clearly. And she just, you know, was infatuated with this new person. 
Anyway, to make a long story short, she ends up divorcing that person. We end up not speaking anymore because um, anybody that knows me, I stand very, uh, very strong in my values and uh, it's not something that I was going to encourage. So the, our friendship ended up uh, ending at that point. And so she ended up staying with that new person for a couple of years, for about five years, and had a lot of regrets and regretted that she didn't stay with her first husband. Yeah. It did not turn out well, and uh, her first husband ended up remarrying. So, you know, you have to, all this to say, it's really important if you are around somebody that is backslidden, you know, remember what God has taught you and be that positive voice and you know sometimes there's nothing we can do right the person has to learn from their own experiences and uh, that's what they're talking about in this verse in this verse you know a lot of people will want to silence any voice that are that surrounds them that is hinting to their own sin they don't want to be reminded of their own sin when they're in this backslidden mode they will, you know, lose relationships if they have to. Yeah, and, th- and that's exactly why they distance themselves from church or godly friends. Or they, you know, obviously the first thing they're going to do is stop reading the scriptures or praying. And, and that's that's what happens. Those are signs. So in the story, the son, the first thing he does is he sets off for a distant country. So that's what the young son did. He put some distance and he then decided to live like a demon, basically. And that brings us to the third point realization and repentance then in the story comes the young man's realization and repentance realization and repentance rarely comes to us when we have a full bank account and a life of plenty no more often than not our repentance comes when we begin seeking and we most often begin seeking when we are missing something when we are in lack In the case of this young son, he missed his three square meals a day and the comforts of home. When you begin looking at what pigs are eating and it looks good to you, you know you are in trouble. Amen to that. (laughs) And the Bible says that the pigs were eating pods. So what are pods? Well, it refers to the pods of the carob tree, which closely resembles a small horn and were commonly used for fattening swine. So it was they grew in, in trees and they give swine to that, uh, they give that kind of food to to swine. And these sad dried up pieces of swine food were also seen as an article of food by poor people in the day. It's definitely not a delicacy, especially when trampled and drooled on by pigs. And the story also tells us that although he was hungry and a working man, No one would give him anything. So we could assume that in his present employment as a swine feeder, he was forbidden to eat the pigs' food. I mean, we have that at our, our, if you have a job or if you had a job, especially in restoration, uh, they're going to tell you you're not allowed to eat unless you pay for the food to have it at your table when you're on your lunch break or whatever. But you're not allowed to just like, Uh, pick and eat that the food that you're preparing for clients so it must have been something kind of similar for him you're feeding the swine that's your job but you're not allowed to take that food for yourself and that's when he came to his senses that's what the the story tells us when you're at that point in your life when you're looking at the food that pigs are eating yeah that's a wake-up call right 
When we live in deep sin and rebellion against the Father, we live in an almost inebriated state, okay? It's like we're drunk or on drugs and, and high. But when the effect dissipates, this is when we come to our senses. And the effect dissipates quite fast when we wallow in pig dung. That's a huge wake-up call. Or, in more modern terms, when we lose our job or our marriage, or wake up in the bed of a stranger, or when we get in some other kind of trouble. Those are life's wake-up calls. So, the son decided to repent and go back to his father's house as a servant. He fabricated a speech that he repeated and memorized. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I've done that myself. I mean, I've been married for 18 years. When I'm in the doghouse with Elizabeth, because, hey, it, it does happen. I, I do some stupid things sometimes or say stupid things. When I find <laughs> myself in the doghouse and then let's say I go to work, while I'm at work, I'll be, I'll be thinking about what I did. And I'm like, how, how can I make it up to her? What can I tell her that's going to make her forgive me? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up a little speech or a little key phrase or something that I know maybe I can text her or tell her when I get home that's going to be like a, like a sales hook. You know, like, you know, it's going to make her forgive me. After 16 years, he's very good with words, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what the son did. He had his little memorized speech that he knew was going to be a great sales pitch for the father to forgive him and take him back. Okay, but then I absolutely love verse 20, which says, so he got up and went to his father. It's so short, very short verse, but I love it. So he got up and went to his father. This is indicative that there is a stern and very solemn decision that's being made. There's something so special about getting back up when we fall. And we all fall down. All of us do. But like the sun, we have to get up and go to our father. I think this verse is the turning point in the story. Absolutely. And you know, when we study personal development, that's one of the major points that we all talk about. Because failure is a big part of success. It's You learn more about success through failure yeah. and other people's failures. Absolutely. So... This is what's really interesting. Here are a few points that we notice. He was down, but not out. He could still get up, and he did. Les Brown says that when we fall, if we can look up, we can get up. His decision was made. He got up. When we're in a ditch, climbing out begins with us getting up. Getting back up is the starting point from where we are to where we want to be. So he got up and went to his father. Amen. He got up. He got up and went to his father. Number four, forgiveness and restoration. The most beautiful part of this story is the father's forgiveness and restoration of his son. Notice how in the story he doesn't like gruel him and, you know, kind of like, you know, 
scold him. Scold him for squandering you his money. You should be ashamed of yourself. And making bad decisions and how he, you know, was very um, immature with his money. He doesn't do any of that. Mm. The story tells us that when he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. Did you know that God our Father has compassion on us even before we pray to Him to ask for forgiveness? He too sees us when we are still a long way off. And when we are repentant and resolute and get up to go to Him, before we even make that first step, He is already running towards us. Yeah, that's a beautiful picture. If there are a thousand steps that separate us from God, and we make one small step towards our Father in heaven, He will cover the 999 remaining steps as He runs towards us. He covers us with His grace and embraces us, just like in that story. And then comes the restoration. This is the part of the story that seems to evade so many Bible teachers. We love to talk about the repentance of the Son and the forgiveness of the Father. But we seem to miss the part about the Son's restoration. And the restoration is the most crucial part to understand the whole story. So the story tells us that the Father has a sense of urgency in restoring His Son. He says, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on Him. Put a ring on His finger and sandals on His feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, let's look at these symbolic gestures and objects one by one. The robe. The father quickly requested a robe to be put on his son. Back in Bible times, the common attire was a tunic. Common people wore a tunic. A robe back in Bible times was a looser and longer kind of tunic that was worn by nobility and important people. Scripture indicates its uses by kings in 1 Samuel chapter 24 verse 4 and also by prophets in 1 Samuel 28 verse 14 and nobles in Job chapter 1 verse 20. Yeah, and, and also Joseph was found to be distinguished among his brothers when his father Jacob honored him with the coat of many colors. And that's, uh, that was more like a robe because it had a, a, a luxurious appearance that made his brothers jealous. That's in Gen Genesis uh, chapter 37, verse 3. So the robe is chic, perhaps even royal attire in the Bible. It was no small thing to be clothed in one. It would be the equivalent of today wearing a Giorgio Armani suit, and then some. And let's talk about the ring. Back in Bible times, common people did not wear rings. Rings were a symbol of affluence, prominence, and authority. Kings would often wear rings to symbolize their status and power. These were decorated with distinct carvings or shapes that became official signatures when the king pressed his ring into wax that sealed the document or letter. Mm -hmm. The term signet ring indicates a particular object that was used for making a royal sign. And when Joseph 
graduated, if you will, from his prison cell to becoming president of Egypt, the Pharaoh publicly affirmed his new role in Genesis chapter 41, verses 41 and 42. This is what we read. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I now put you in charge of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring and put it on Joseph's finger. He had Joseph dressed in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. So I love this passage because it speaks of robes and the ring. So we see the parallel here with the, uh, the son in the story that is basically being dressed up as royalty. So this designated, uh, in the case of Joseph, his position and status in the kingdom of Egypt. Someone wearing the, the king's ring could exercise the king's authority. So in like manner, the son in the story being given the ring by his father indicates that he is given his father's authority in the household. And let's talk about the sandals. Yeah. The sandals, just like the other two items, signified the son was not a servant. The servants did not wear any sandals. The lyrics uh, in, in the, um, the book Song of Songs confirms sandals were worn by the high-born. In Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 1, we read this, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. Furthermore, a common custom back in the Bible times, as you probably do know already, was to wash the feet of people who came to your house. We know Jesus in that epic moment uh, in the Gospels when he decided to, to take a bowl of water and, and wash the disciples' feet was showing them to become a servant. Uh, so that was like a, a, a something that you did to... Uh, the servants did that. So when, you, when the father says, bring him sandals, well, it can be assumed that they also washed his feet before they put the sandals because you wouldn't put sandals on dirty feet. So the, probably the, the servants were uh, beckoned to wash his feet and take care of him because he had walked a long ways from that distant country to go find his dad, right? Right. So if you were to put sandals on the feet of the people who came to your house as guests, that would have been, back in the day, the icing on the cake as far as honor goes because the, the, the traditional um, behavior or honor, honorable thing to do was to wash their feet at the very least. Right. And last point, the fatted calf. To celebrate his son's return and his restoration, the father ordered that they kill the fatted calf for a feast. In biblical times, people would often keep at least one piece of livestock that was fed a special diet to fatten it up. This made it more flavorsome when prepared as a meal. Slaughtering this livestock was to be done on rare and special occasions. So when the prodigal son returns, the father kills the fatted calf to show that the celebration is out of the ordinary. Yeah, it was a really big feast. It was a big deal, a big party. And everybody knows, I mean, you know, if, if you want a, a good steak, it's always better when there's more fat on it, right? <laughs> it gives it more flavor. All in all, what the father ordered for his son. So we're talking about the, the robe, the ring, the sandals, and the fatted calf indicates that this man was very wealthy. He was well off. He was not a commoner. He had servants 
and, and all the other things that he gave his son. He had property, he had cattle, uh, robes, etc., etc. So he was a he was a very well off, very wealthy father. So one of the greatest lessons in the prodigal son's story is the lesson about what he is given. As believers, we too were given the same honors as the younger son. We have talked about this many times in previous podcasts. The robe, the ring, the sandals, the feast, these are summed up well by the Apostle Peter when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, verse 6 says that he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've been made uh, rich. We've been honored. We've been given position. And we've talked about this in previous podcasts, right? But even after all this, we often show signs. I'm talking about believers here we often show signs of excessive humility. What is excessive humility? First of all, is that a thing? Excessive humility. It it, it seems a bit crazy as Christians to say, well, this man here is too humble. We always see humility as something that you can't be too much of, right? Well, that's that's not true. You can't be too humble, okay? What is excessive humility? Well, in the case of that story, would it, be, it would be something like the refusal of wearing the robe, the ring, or the sandals, and the refusal to attend the ceremony and eat the fatted calf. You're going to be like, what? Refusal? Yeah. This strange behavior is induced by religious thinking. So I'm going to put you in context, okay? Imagine for a moment, if the sun... Sticking to his guns, and when I say sticking to his guns, I'm talking about what he had recited in his, in his mind the, the whole time of the trip, right? What he was going to say to his father. Imagine if he had stuck to his guns and told the father, when the father said, get the ring and the sandals and everything. Imagine if he had said, no, 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 you don't understand. I am not worthy of all this. I will not wear your precious attire. I came to be a servant and that's all there is to it. Now, can you imagine that? Now, the father would have still been glad that his son came home, and yet he would have been robbed of the joy of honoring and restoring his son. His son would not have served him in his full capacity. It would have grieved the father deeply to see his son walking in dishonor among his servants and not enjoying everything he had to give. Furthermore, the son, with an attitude like that, by associating himself with the servants, would relinquish his given authority and would not be able to run the affairs of his father properly. I hope I'm making sense. The son, we as sons, were supposed to lead, to be the head. And yet, in that, uh, uh, that imaginary Uh, take on this story, if the son had refused all that, he would choose to be the tail. Now, you might find this amusing, but many believers 
do the exact same thing. Religious thinking induces excessive humility. Proper humility says something along those lines. Although I do not deserve these gifts, I will accept them, run with them, and use my God-given authority for the glory of the Father and His kingdom. That's proper humility. Excessive humility says, I do not deserve these gifts. I am just a sinner saved by grace, and I am not fit to rule. I am a lowly servant of God. That is excessive humility. Here I'm going to say something that you need to jot that down. This is powerful. Excessive humility is just another form of rebellion. Let me repeat that. Excessive humility is just another form of rebellion. It was excessive humility on the part of Moses that pushed God to snapping at Moses when, after having patiently showed him how he would be with him, you know, he was said, I'm going to be with you. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Egypt. You're going to deliver the people. Take your staff. Take the staff into your hand. Throw it on the ground. See, it's a serpent now. So, so I'm going to do miracles for you. I'm going to do all kinds of great things. I'm with you. You just saw a burning bush. I'm God. I'm powerful. I'm with you. Don't worry. But Moses kept finding excuse after excuse after excuse, right? And we read of this in Exodus as it, as it uh, gets to its... Um, culmination of, of excuses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. But Moses said, No, Lord, don't send me. I've never been a good speaker, and I haven't become one since you began to speak to me. I'm a poor speaker, slow and hesitant. The Lord said to him, Who gives man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? It is I, the Lord. Now go. I will help you to speak, and I will tell you what to say. But Moses answered, No, Lord, please send someone else. And then the next verse, verse 14, At this the Lord became angry with Moses. See, Moses was portraying himself as extremely, what we would call, humble. But no, it was basically calling God a liar. Because God had shown him everything that he would do, everything that he would give him, the power he would give him, and Moses was still acting as if God just didn't exist. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do this. We do the same thing oftentimes as believers. So Moses was trying to shirk responsibility by always playing the card of, I am not good at this or that, or I am not worthy, or I'm not capable. And yet God says we are. God says we are sons, not servants. Yes, it is true that in the Bible, we are exhorted to serve, okay? And on this podcast, we have said it many, many times, just how important is it, it is to be good servant leaders. And we have many, many times, me and Elizabeth both, emphasized the importance of humility. It's extremely important. But always remember this very important truth. Here's another quote that you're going to want, want to write down, okay? This is good stuff. We are exhorted to serve and anointed to rule. We are exhorted to serve and anointed to rule. And now let's talk about the differences 
after we reached all this and I hope I made my point clear I don't want you, I want you guys to understand this okay when you when when you were when you came back when you repented when you accepted Jesus into your life yes you're a servant but you're a servant son you're not just a servant you're a servant king you're a servant ruler okay because the father has made you so okay so I, I, I hope I made my point clear now I want to talk about the differences between the two sons up until this point, we know just about Zilch, about the older brother. We just hear at the beginning of the story that he has two sons. We, we, we didn't get nothing on the older brother. We have no clue who he is, what he does, whatever. But when he makes his appearance in the story, the story takes quite an interesting turn. It shows us a very big contrast between the two brothers. This is my personal take on it, okay? I believe that the older brother represents religious people. There is a saying that I once read that says, religion is for people afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for those who have been there. And I think that that saying really fits the, the, the situation with the older brother. The prodigal younger son is the one that has gone through hell and he found his way back to the kingdom of his father. So as a result, he is now fully aware of everything it means to be living in his father's household. He understands his riches, he understands his privileges, and he understands his authority. This will make him an efficient servant ruler in his father's house. Very efficient, actually. Now, the older son, he's the one afraid of going to hell, or what we would call disobeying. So, so basically, he's the one who never understood his father, his kingdom, and his inheritance. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the older brother does all the right things for all the wrong reasons. He obeys his father not out of love, but out of misplaced fear. That's why he got so upset at the father feasting over his younger brother's return. Notice what he says. Notice the older brother's religious statement in what he says. He says to his father, Look, all these years I've been, here's a very important term, slaving for you, okay? And another important term, never disobeyed your orders. Yet, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's angry and bitter. He's using terms, I've been slaving for you. This older son, although he was under the father's household, was acting, behaving, and thinking like a slave. Okay? In essence, he was saying, I've been a good, obedient slave, and you never gave me anything. I've been going to church, reading my Bible, using Christian lingo, evangelizing, doing what my pastor asked, bringing more food than all the others at our church potluck suppers, and what has it brought me? Huh? Huh? Maybe you've been in that situation. <laughs> Maybe you have. Notice also how he speaks, saying his father never, what? 
gave him a goat to celebrate with his friends. I think that's very interesting. See, he doesn't say that he once asked for a goat and the father didn't give it to him. He just expected the goat. And remember how we're supposed to ask in prayer for everything we desire? So this older son, it seems like he's not, he wasn't quote unquote asking or praying for whatever he desired from the father who would probably have lovingly said, of course, my son, you can have a goat. But it, see, we see in the context that he's just blaming the father for not having given him a goat. So in other words, although he did the right things, he didn't have a right relationship with his father. Okay. And I think that's the bottom line when it comes to the older brother. And the father tries to explain proper kingdom perspective to him, okay? Proper kingdom understanding. And this is, this is the message of Jesus in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God this, the kingdom of God that, trying to make us understand who we are, what we have access to in the father's kingdom. So, Likewise, in that story, the father says this. He says to the older son who's angry, he says, My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he was dead in his sin and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the experience of the younger brother having been through all of that, made him born again. It's obvious from the story that we, we understand what happened to the younger son. He went through hell, repented, came back in, in total repentance, and he, he, he's now fully restored and reestablished in his relationship with the father. So he's born again, okay? The older brother, he's the religious type. He's been to church all these years, been doing all the right things and behaving all the right way and wearing all the right clothes. And yet he doesn't understand the first thing about the kingdom of God and his place in it and what he's supposed to do. I think it's, um, it's very interesting, the points that you bring. And, you know, I think also as kingdom citizens, as children of the king, of the high king, we have to think, you know, this the way God sees us is, um, you know, he's not looking for favorites. He's not looking to give one more than the other. Um, you know, this, the father, the story of the prodigal son, I think represents this very, very well that he's seeing his son as, you know, lost and being found and rejoicing because now he's having, you know, another person that can, uh, take over the kingdom and add value and help out and and you know um, bless the servants and bless other people and work together and the older sibling doesn't see that he doesn't see how you know in a way they're supposed to work together he's seeing it as you know my father my son my my brother left so he's like this and you know we just don't want anything to do with him because he did everything wrong and therefore I deserve this, I deserve that. And you know, amongst Christians, there's a lot of that in churches. There's oh, a lot yeah. of that, yeah. uh, especially uh, surprisingly, and it's sad, but in church leadership, in different um, you know, organizations, uh, groups that 
that are ministries, uh, there's a lot of, you know, who's going to be the favorite of the pastor yeah. and who's going to get this and this privilege and whatnot. And people tend to act like that instead of realizing, you know, you're all working to please the high king. So, you know, a bit like, you know, in the olden days where you had knights that worked for the king, you had to think of yourself in that way, that you're all knights working together as a team for the most high God. Mm -hmm. So when one is lost, it's a bad thing. Yeah. And it's like, you it's know, hurting you're supposed the body. to be exactly it's hurting the body of christ because then you're you're outnumbered one you know if you were in the avengers and hulk dies in the avengers uh you know you would be really really upset because you have one less really strong opponent to the bad guys right so a little superhero talk there I, but i like that <laughs> we're uh, we're into superheroes but you know just to give you an, an image right so we're all supposed to work together like the avengers work mm -hmm. so if you've seen any of the movies you get the picture so that's why it's so important to not have jealousy and not to be looking especially at what god gives others now we you know a lot of christians tend to nitpick and look, God bless this Christian more. Look at his ministry. Look at what he's doing. Look at this team leader. Look at this guy. Yeah. He's got more than I do. Uh, Why does God bless him more than me? I do this and this for God. Why is he not blessing me as much? Yeah, and it's like I've, I've heard someone say once. He said, uh, uh, who are you to judge another man's harvest? Hmm. I, and I think that's a powerful statement right there. I mean, we... You know, plant your own seed, cultivate your own soil, and, and mind your own, your own God-given business, you know? Yeah, there's that aspect, and there's also, you know, the time where everybody's different. So the developing of your character and the developing of your mind and everything that goes into uh, God's creation of you and what you're supposed to become could take more time for you than it did for that other person or maybe you're just not aware of how long it took that person to be in that dark room working with god and and develop god was developing him and now you're just seeing this harvest yeah. and you're jealous of the harvest yeah. so focus on what god's doing with you how much you're growing and stop looking at what god's giving other people yeah. and just Focus on that so that you can get further towards the rewards and towards the harvest. If you mind yourself and always be happy for others, always have joy for others uh, that are, you know, getting wealth, that are getting harvest, that are getting blessings from God. God sees that. God sees that you're mature and you're you're able to have more mm. than a jealous heart that, you know, just wants and is greedy. Yeah. So it's very, very important to not fall into that trap. Yeah, when, when a believer becomes successful and fruitful, it's good for the kingdom. So you always have to think in, in terms, like you said, of a team. Yeah. We're working, working together as a team. So if, if, if your, your fellow Christian or believer becomes uh, wealthy, he can do so much more for the kingdom. So instead of looking at him and, and, and being mad at God because he made so-and-so wealthy or we have to stop being divisive obviously and we, we, have, we have a lot of problems with that yeah and we have to give you know it's not because they're getting blessed that you can't give to their organization god wants to see you having a cheerful heart a, a you know a, a giver is something that god really really likes because the more he pours into you he knows that you're going to give a lot of that away 
So it's really important to, to manifest that and practice that, to be giving, even if these organizations, uh, you know, you think, oh, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of supporters. No, God wants to see your heart in this. You give to an organization well, that you believe is doing a lot of great good yeah. for God's people. That's going to, you know, you're going to reap a lot of great rewards and God is happy with that. And that shows that you're not attached to your money either, that it's not, you know, you're not greedy. But I am I always advocate give where God, the spirit leads, right? Yeah. Um, if he wants you to give to a local organization, do so. If he wants you to give to an international one that even if they have a whole lot of money and they, they, they don't seem to be in trouble or need your money, if God is leading you to give there, give there. Mm -hmm. Just obey the voice of the Lord no matter where he tells you to give or to go. Exactly. So this concludes our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, we look forward to hearing your feedback. You can reach out to us at the Thriving on Purpose Facebook page or on the bottom of this podcast. There's a comment section. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast and how it's impacted you. And uh, we wish you a great week. And before we let you guys go, don't forget to go to thrivingonpurpose.com. On the first page, on the homepage, we prepared 85 empowering biblical declarations for you. Um, it's a, an audio that you can listen to morning and an audio that you can listen to in the evening to wind down. And these are very powerful biblical declarations to really help strengthen your mindset in the morning and in the, in the evening. Well, and what she calls morning and evening is basically two versions. One is more like quieting, calming that you listen to mostly at night and you don't want to listen to it before you operate any heavy machinery. And the other one is more motivating, a little bit more uplifting, upbeat that you can listen to anytime basically. So it's an MP3 format. So it's very easy to download it. Just go on the homepage and you can do that and you, you're going to enjoy them. They're, you're going to benefit from that because um, it's straight straight from the Bible. It's uh, adapted from the New Testament and it's promises of God and they're very empowering. It's about who you are and what you have in Christ. Absolutely. So we wish you a great week. Be blessed. And thrive on. For more free resources and content, make sure to visit thrivingonpurpose.com 